Coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, fellow Sark Fighter Betsy Bennett went from cancer to sarcoidosis. I had what was called um, an interval tumor, which means that I was keeping up on all my screenings, but the tumor grew so quickly between my screenings. She just couldn't get a break. And they found, the good, the great news was no metastatic disease, but they found what they were afraid was just what they call a new primary cancer in my lung. It's all coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hi and welcome. This is episode 86 of the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. And this is April of 2023, and this year the theme of Sarcoidosis Awareness Month, which is this month, is Stand Up for Sark. Please listen to episode 84 to hear how you can participate and let the world know about sarcoidosis. I interviewed uh, some members of the staff, and we talked about all the fun things that are going on this month. Some great pictures people are sending in posing like a superhero in their sarcoidosis outfits, holding up signs, doing videos, and taking steps for Sark. And all the information is back there in episode 84. And you know what? Even if it gets beyond April, it's okay. All right? So let's just keep it going and let the world know about sarcoidosis. This episode is brought to you by Kind Event Sciences. Kind Event Sciences is researching a potential new drug for sarcoidosis called nemilumab, which inhibits one of the key proteins believed to be responsible for granuloma formation and persistence in sarcoidosis. And I would invite you to go back and listen to episode 69 of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, where Kind Event CEO Bill Gerhardt and their director of patient advocacy, Rainy Rogers, discuss the status of nemilumab and also tell you how you can get involved as a sarcoidosis patient and participate in now their phase two clinical trial, which is called Resolve Lung. And I've got a link in the show notes, but they are still recruiting people to participate in this clinical trial. And it is so important that those of us in the community step up and participate in these trials, and they make it as easy as they possibly can for you to do that, and of course, safe. So uh, just go ahead and take a look at it and see if that is something that that you think you might be able to participate in. And I got to tell you, this drug, nemilumab, is showing great promise so far. So let's all get involved and let's help them move the needle and see if we can't get a drug-approved for treating sarcoidosis, and that's kind of in sciences. Also, I got to tell you, the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is proud to host the inaugural Sarcoidosis Crystal Awards Gala, celebrating connections, collaboration, and catalyzing research. It'll be on May 24th in Washington, D.C. It is a big evening. The gala will be bringing together the SARC community for an evening celebrating clinicians, researchers, and advocates from all around the world 
who are leading the charge to advance sarcoidosis research and carve the path towards better treatments and a cure. And you can visit stopsarcoidosis.org to learn more, or you can just click on the link in the show notes. But let me just tell you quickly that there are four honorees this year. The Crystal Award for Excellence in Research and Clinical Care goes to Marjolene Drent. The Sarcoidosis Crystal Community Engagement Award goes to George A. Mensa, who is the Director for Translation Research and Implementation Science at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. So we're talking about a big hitter uh, in both of those cases. And then same for the next person, uh, the Sarcoidosis Crystal Spotlight Award will go to Gerald Prescott-Galian. She is an actress that you may have seen in The Walking Dead, in The Swamp Thing, in the DC Universe, also on Netflix, Resort to Love, and most recently, All the Queen's Men. So those are the first three honorees. And then I am just very pleased and humbled to tell you that I am the fourth honoree. And I will also be receiving a Crystal Award. And I just really hope that you can take the time uh, and go to Washington and participate in this gala because I think it's, it's going to be awesome. And when you look at the the folks, not so much me, but the other folks, and the fact that we're we're honoring people all over the world, and I say we, I mean FSR is honoring people all over the world. It's just it's going to be a big night, and I would like to meet as many of you as possible at this event. So it's in Washington, D.C. on May 24th. All the information is in the show notes and on the FSR website. Okay, now to today's interview. Betsy Bennett is an inspiration, but I got to tell you, she has had a tough, tough run of it. First, she had cancer, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, serious cancer, and she's going to talk about that in the interview because we can't talk about the rest of her situation until you know kind of where she was coming from. But then something flared up in her body, which they thought was cancer, and do you see where, where this is going? I'm looking at the PATH report going, what are these, what's a non-caseating granuloma? Uh-huh. <gasps> I feel like a zombie Just feeding at stumbling Hi. I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter Podcast. Joining me now is Betsy Bennett. And Betsy is a fellow Sark Fighter who also has some professional advice for us today. Betsy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you, um, how long have you had sarcoidosis? Well, that's a really good question that I know that many of your listeners have experienced. I'm not sure. I know when I was diagnosed 
was just a little over a year ago, I was, um, I had surgery for lung cancer, I never smoker. All you people out there, particularly women in their 50s, I learned this, that um, it's like a, it's a fast growing form of cancer, lung cancer and never smoker women. So um, anyway, uh, I had surgery for that and, and I was really lucky that they found it because I, I, I they, it, it's a weird story, forgive me if I'm going off, but I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2019. I had what was called um, an interval tumor, which means that I was keeping up on all my screenings, but the tumor grew so quickly between my screenings. So just kind of shows you like women don't put off their mammograms. I mean, and I didn't put mine off, but I think that's what saved my life that I didn't mm. put it off. Anyway, my particular um, cancer, um, they give you chemo first and surgery second. So I had many months of chemotherapy, then I had a double mastectomy, and then my chemotherapy continued for like an entire year. Um, and by that time we were into COVID, the very beginning of COVID. And I was done. They um, proclaimed me what's called a complete responder, meaning that by the time they did my surgery, there was no tumor left. So like, the, and I, there was no evidence of cancer in my lymph nodes. I mean, it was like the best news you could have. Mm -hmm. And so once they dismiss you from cancer treatment, then you're seen quarterly. So I was seen, you know, I finished up in April, was seen over the summer and my blood values looked abnormal. Um, and then the next time they checked, they were worse and worse. And so this led to Christmas of 2020. I had um, uh, the PET scans, the whole thing. And they found the good, the great news was no metastatic disease, but they found what they were afraid was just what they call a new primary cancer in my lung. So I, I was like, are you kidding? Like, I just couldn't, you know, you right. can't even wrap your mind around it. Yeah. You, you so, just survived breast cancer and now they're finding something new, not related. Right. Exactly. So um, anyway, that's why I say breast cancer saved my life, because if I had not had breast cancer, there's no way. I mean, I wasn't having any symptoms. There was, you know, there was nothing. It was I, I, I got lucky. So they said, listen, the kind of cancer this looks like seems to be a slow grower, if that's even what it is at all. So we just want to watch it. So then we're into 2021, right? And um, remember that time kind of in spring, early summer 2021, where everyone thought that the COVID vaccine was going to keep you complete, like you would never get COVID. Right. And remember, we just had a little bit of time before very, very that small. summer. Yep. yep. Yes. So during that time, I, of course, dropped my mask like other vaccinated people did when I was around other vaccinated people. And um, in early June, I started having these episodes where I would just like almost fall. I'd be out walking and my legs would just kind of crumble. And it turned out that I was having these like bouts of like my blood pressure would just drop. And then soon after that, I was struck with just crazy fatigue. Like I in all of your Sark fighter listeners will know what that fatigue is like. Yeah. I thought maybe I had some kind of long COVID, even though I had never had symptoms. I just didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. 
but I couldn't get out from under that fatigue. But of course, my doctors were kind of like, oh yeah, that's too bad, but we got to watch this thing in your lung, you know? Um, so I wasn't kind of really worked up for that fatigue. And I found that I could manage it kind of. So then in the fall of 2021, I finally had a lung biopsy. Yes, it was cancer. And they said, and yes, it is the slow growing type. So we don't have so, to ruin your holidays. Okay. Why don't we schedule you for the first of the year? So that was early 2022. So this is not so, sarcoidosis yet. This is still cancer. This is all right. This is all cancer and this weird fatigue that seemed to come out of nowhere. Okay. So then I get the results from the lung, um, from the when they could finally do a full path after they had taken out this chunk of my lung. And it was like all this kind of celebratory news, like, the thoracic surgeon was like, this is literally the smallest lung cancer I've ever removed. We got this so early, no evidence of anything in your lymph nodes. But I'm looking at the PATH report going, what are these, what's a non-caseating granuloma? Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, well, probably means you have sarcoidosis. And that's going to mean an ongoing diagnostic challenge for us because we're going to be monitoring your lungs. And now we're not going to know what's sarcoid, what's cancer. But no one ah. said anything to me about really like, and, and then I went home and read about it. And I read and I, I felt so validated when I've heard I'm sure what many of your, I, I know many of your listeners have experienced when you first read about it, it's like, oh, it's nothing. You know, lots of people have it and they don't even have, know they have it, da, da, right. you know, and I'm kind of like, and I'm feeling better after my surgery and I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm one of those people. My fatigue seems to have resolved. Da, da, da. So late March, we, my husband and I go to Arizona and I'm usually a pretty active person. Now compared to you, John, I'm not active. <laughs> <laughs> I've never run, I've never run a marathon, all that. But by my standards on that, I mean, I like to kayak and hike and, and this. That's so active. we went to Arizona yeah. to do all these things. And we were in day three of it. And I just woke up one morning and I just, the fatigue was just, I was like pinned to my bed, shortness of breath. I mean, in retrospect, I'm like, okay, I'm having a flare. Yeah. Um. So- yeah. We kind of cobbled through the rest of our vacation with me sitting more than walking. And um, when we came back, I made an appointment with my pulmonologist and I said, what, what you know, what? And, and he was like, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he told me, um, if this continues, we're going to have a problem because you have not one, but two cancers that you're at risk for recurrence. We never want to put you on an immune suppressant. We need your immune oh, system working. Of course. Full. So all the drugs that most of us take are not the drugs that you're eligible for. Exactly. Oh, wow. So right now, I'm not taking anything. I mean, he was very thorough. He checked with my oncologist. She said, yep, that's right. Nothing. Absolutely. No prednisone. No, nothing, nothing, nothing. So I basically, since that time, just kind of gone through these periods where sometimes I feel pretty well, like right now I feel pretty well, but then like I had a pretty bad flare 
all December and January. It just took me eight weeks to kind of climb out of that. And right now, my major symptom is just this, like, um, I'm going to say intermittent when it, when it strikes, it lasts a long time. But um, these kind of flares where my, my main symptom is I have a little bit of a cough and I'm just so, I just can't, I, I can't even cook. You know, I, I sit in the, I have to sit at the counter to chop my vegetables. Like, you know what this is. You sure. have it. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's kind of where I am. And then unfortunately, I'll stop my stories going on forever. In January, they did my year follow-up for my lung cancer. For the lung cancer. And they found a new lesion in the other lung. And Oh, so that's just in the last two months? Yes. So they think it's like inflammatory. In other words, that it could be related to sarcoid. But because of my cancer history, they can't be sure. So I'm having another scan in three weeks. So. Oh. That, you, I mean, you. That's just a uh, like the the worst trifecta ever, right? That's, I, I know, and and I struggle. I struggle with um, this holding these two absolutely opposing feelings of like I'm the unluckiest person in the world, and yet I'm the lucky person. I, I mean, I'm alive. Neither cancer has spread. I have I have healthcare coverage. Right. I have friends and family who love me and take care of me. It, you know, so it's so. You're, you're, li- you're living. Yeah, you're living a blessed life. Yes. You're, you've been diagnosed because of something bad that happened. So <laughs> there's a yin to every yang, it seems like here for you. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yes. So, and, and now where do you live? I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah. And how's the, how's your uh, weather down there here in Virginia today? It's it's the cold winter has come back. Same here. It's so weird to look out at because I'm I I'm looking at the camera, but just beyond is a window out of my office, and everything is this you know beautiful fresh green, and it's like thirty some degrees yeah, outside. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah. it's a yeah. little strange. Yeah, just for listeners, uh, this is um, March 15th of 2023, and we've just been, I, I don't know, the Northeast is getting pounded, the West Coast is getting pounded, so maybe maybe we should be counting our blessings like Betsy is here. But yeah. And so you have, let's talk about your family life. You're married, you have children, so you've got, what what's going on with you in, in your personal life? So I have been married for... 31 years. Um, my husband is a urologist, which um, has been such a blessing throughout yeah. this. Um, yeah. Not that he has, you know, expertise in the areas of the body that I'm having trouble, but um, it's just wonderful to have my partner. Um, I don't know. He He's seen, you know, he, he obviously, you know, he sees patients with prostate cancer, and then he sees patients with lots of sort of less life-threatening things. But it is wonderful to be so close to someone who, and I don't, not trying to be dramatic here, but he's seen a lot of human suffering, and mm-hmm. he's very um, uh, understanding of, of what that looks like, you know? Um, so yeah, he's, he's 100% a blessing. Um, and, and he can also talk medical ease, 
with my um, <laughs> with my providers, yeah. which is nice. Um, and then I have two daughters who are, you know, grown and flown. I've got a 28 year old um, in Chicago and a 25 year old in New York City. So, OK. All right. Yeah. Grown and flown. Yeah. Well, and you yourself are a Ph.D. You're a clinical psychologist. Mm hmm. So what when you're just out there helping people and I'm going to get some advice from you for for shark patients, but what does that look like in terms of your your job description and what you do? So I do um, I do a little bit of a bunch of things. Of course, now when I'm feeling well enough to work, um, I teach part time at University of North Carolina, um, and I um, sometimes do like behavioral research for um, pharmaceutical clients. So, you know, when they're looking at, you know, questions of, you know, quality of life and, and things like that, um, I'm, I'm, they might hire me to, to help with their papers or whatever. Got it. And then I also work typically for pharmaceutical companies or their agencies developing um, things to put on their websites or emails or even sometimes social media um, that is in support of certain patient groups. So the industry jargon would be that I work on unbranded initiatives, meaning I don't work on the stuff that says, ask your doctor about such and such okay. today. Sure, right, um, right, like the commercials but, on the Today Show. Exactly, right. yeah. exactly. Um, my stuff would be more like maybe, maybe Biogen, I'm just using that as an example, mm -hmm. is making, um, is creating a website for patients with a certain disease that they make drugs for. Mm -hmm. They might often have a website that is just basically for information and, to, and support. So they would hire a medical person to write the medical education part, but they would hire me to write things uh, around, you know, um, how might this disease affect your marriage? Um, what happens when you lose friends when you're diagnosed with this, that, or the other? Okay. And um, and so I interview a lot of patients and um, find out about those things in the specific context of the disease, and then help the ad agency create stuff that will be supportive and helpful for patients. Got it. All right. Well, you and I talked uh, a little bit uh, before the podcast. And there, there are three areas uh, of life that you want want to share some advice for SARC patients, and I think I think this is going to re resonate very well with people. So the first is is once you've been diagnosed and you are now either suffering from the effects of the disease or the medications, and your life has changed considerably, and mm -hmm. and. and just about everybody who's been on the podcast has had some version of that story. I've had a, yeah. a pretty distinct version of that story. So you, the, the three areas that you want to discuss, and then we'll, then we'll break it down. The change that will happen with your close and casual relationships, the change in the way you view yourself, and then the way your your healthcare relationships change. So let's look at what happens with your close and casual relationships. Is there a pattern there that tends to happen to everybody, 
Uh, is there a way of thinking that will help people if they're suffering from, from all of a sudden your friends don't want to be friends with you anymore? What, what do you see? What's the solution? Yeah. So, you know, it is a little different for everybody because it kind of depends on well, lots of things. What stage of life are you in when yeah. this happens to you? Um, uh, how, um, how outward kind of are your symptoms? Um, I listen to, I love this podcast, by the way, <laughs> I say this to your listeners. It was so helpful to me when I discovered it, but I listened to one that you had, um, that was just before Christmas and I apologize, I can't remember this woman's name. She was so impressive. She was um, an engineer at, I can't remember if it was Georgia Tech or University of Georgia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and she talked about how her um, sarcoid and the medications that they gave her um, made her look very obviously sick. Um, it was, it was anyone looking at her knew something was terribly wrong. Right. And, and that's different too. That will, that will, um, that will affect relationships in different ways. Um, and, and I experience that now. So for instance, when I was going through chemotherapy, I didn't even wear a wig. It was the middle of summer. It was too hot. I was bald and anyone anywhere could see that I was underweight and bald, you, huh. you know? But now you look at me, I look like a 59-year-old woman, which I am. Right. You know, like you'd have no idea that anything's wrong with me. And so there are all these different variables, I guess, is what I'm getting at um, in terms of how um, strangers react to you, casual friends react to you, and sometimes um, your, your, your close relationships will change, um, but that sort of depends on the, the character and quality of those relationships. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like one of the things that I've done when I feel well, and I'm kind of just getting back to it is I started this YouTube channel where I try to like do these little short videos, sort of giving people some ideas for how to approach these problems. So for instance, one of the common things that many of your listeners might be familiar with is the like, well, you look fine, right. you know, right. um, or you sound great, you know, and, and like I'm pinned in my bed. <laughs> like, right. well, I'm glad I sound great because I can't move, right. you know, um, and like, how do you, how do you handle that? How do you um, cope with that? Right. Yeah. How do you cope with that? And, and it's, um, it's kind of a, a multi-layered approach. So like one of the first things that I would say is number one, if that feels bad to you, and I would say for me, it felt bad. It feels bad when that happens. If that feels bad to you, it is okay to feel angry, to feel alone, to whatever those bad feelings are for you and like identify them. Don't be ashamed of them. Don't say back to yourself or if you do say, forget it. Um, you should be grateful you have friends or whatever. No, that it feels bad when someone says that to you or like what you and I were talking about. Hey, stay positive. Or right. I've had people say to me, like, how do you stay so positive? And I'll think, did I? Am I positive? Am I positive? Because I feel like crap. And, and I don't right, know if right. see tomorrow, right? <laughs> right. I like, I don't know where you're getting positive from, but thanks. <clears throat> so yeah. there's that accepting that it's going to feel bad. 
And then kind of the next step is this you know, sort of like, what does this person mean to me? You know, so if it's a person who is close to you and you want to maintain like an authentic relationship with them, you want that relationship to be good. I would say it's imperative that you share how you feel. And that might be as little as, you know what? I'm so sorry that didn't feel good. And, um, and let me, and, and I'm sure you didn't mean it to not feel good, but like for me, that would sound like that just feels like pressure to me. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm using all my energy to just keep going and then to feel like I have to be positive on top of it. I, I just don't have it. Does, you know, can you, can you see that? And then that person hopefully would say, oh my gosh, I, you know, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah, um, they're probably just trying to be encouraging. Yeah, and, they're trying and, to. And people don't know what to say in that situation. They exactly. want to say something nice. They want to say something nice. They right. don't want to, they don't want to come, they don't want to come to your house and say, wow, you look like crap. Right. You know, um, and so uh, that's a conversation for a close relationship where then the person can say back to you, oh, I thought I was being helpful. And then you can say, I know I didn't want to, I, I don't, I don't want you to feel bad. I just I'm trying to help you understand what it's like to be me right now. And then yeah. the relationship's closer because now you understand each other better. And then if sort of the last possibility is if the person is like, you know, you were never that close <laughs> and, you know, or maybe you don't know them at all. Right. And, um, and, you know, to kind of, you know, thank you and change this topic, you know, um, right. uh, how, it's, it's not you, worth your you energy kind of. How, what do you tell yourself in that situation? So now you've got an awkward situation with a friend on top of you're not feeling great and you're not and and you're not going to get the friend to to do you know the conversation that you suggest. Now now you've got the additional grief of having a problem with a friend. So mm -hmm. what what do you tell yourself in that situation? How do you counsel your your own self? Well, I always start with feel what you're going to feel. And, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm such, I'm, I'm going to start this piece of advice with the fact that until recently, huge hypocrite, what I'm going to say. So I'm going to say, you should try to journal every day. Mm -hmm. And the whole time I was in chemo and well, I couldn't write post-surgery, but even I could have dictated into a phone and I didn't. Right. I didn't journal at all. I couldn't do it. But the first of this year, I finally was like, you know what? You have got to start. And not that there's anything magical about a journal, but it makes you face your thoughts and your feelings. Mm -hmm. So to, to be able to still love yourself and have compassion for yourself, like, of course that feels bad. You tried to bring something up with a friend, and it didn't go well. And now you feel lonelier than ever. Like, um, sort of almost like, God, give yourself a hug. You know, it's what it, you, you, you deserve to have compassion for yourself in that. So that's number one. Then number two, once you give yourself enough time for that, it's also okay to think things like, you know what? My friends probably got his or her own issues around illness in my case, end of life, you know, and 
maybe I need to give them time to, um, if, if they choose, and I hope they will, to um, process that. Uh-huh. Um, it could get better. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a forever thing that this illness drives a wedge. It might be that this person can come around. And if they don't, you know, um, it's another one of those, and you and I talked about this, the grief that comes with illness. There's so many things that we grieve and sometimes it's relationships and that sucks. But I would personally, I would rather grieve a relationship than sort of be a false self when I'm already exhausted from just trying to live. Right. So you just got to basically tell yourself it's okay. Recognize it for what it is. Use the journaling uh, as um, because it's cathartic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it just like after you write it down and after you recognize it and acknowledge it, 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 it makes it easier to deal with. And even there may not be, um, a therapist or somebody that you can talk to, but after you write it out, that just makes you, makes you feel better. I, I don't journal. Do, do most people journal? I don't know if most people journal. I mean, I know a lot of people do. Um, I, 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 mostly women that I know who do it. Yeah, I guess it. that's probably true. Um, yeah, I, I think that, um, the thing that finally got me going was, you know, reading about people who did it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, there's a whole body of um, research on psychological research on the helpfulness of journaling for your mm-hmm. mental health. And, and I was aware of that. Um, but it was finally the idea that, um, and believe it or not, I got this from um, listening to this woman also on YouTube, who um, was a fitness coach of all things, like, why am I watching? <laughs> I can't get out of bed. Uh-huh. Why am I watching right. fitness coach? But, you know, she basically said to get yourself started, you just have to just get in the habit. And if that means that you have a few days in a row where all you write in the journal is, I am here today and I resent it, (laughs) then that's journaling, you know, and that got me going. Is it the process of writing it or the process of recording it that's helpful? You know, I, I, that's, I, I think there's maybe something to both because mm-hmm. having to put your feelings and experiences into words, I think helps clarify it. Um, you know, I remember once in college, I had an English professor who said, writing is thinking and thinking is writing. Mm. And, and I, and I believe those two were intertwined. And so putting that writing into it can sometimes also break you out of a loop that isn't helpful. Um, so yeah, lot, lots of, lots of things about that, but yeah, that's the first thing. And then to your point of a therapist, gosh, if there's any way you can find someone who, um, ideally someone who has experience working with folks who have or living with illness. So, so, so helpful to just have a place to go where someone who has seen what you're going through before and has the professional training to help you manage it. To help you I get think through is that stuff. Priceless. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. have it help you reach your own appropriate conclusions. Yeah. So, so we've talked about relationships. 
I, I feel like we've touched a little bit on the change in self, but that was your second bullet point. So how do you deal with the change in yourself and the way you look at things? I mean, you've had two, you've had cancer twice, which creates a sort of end of life mm-hmm. thought process, even if it's not true, thankfully, so right. far. Um, yeah. So how do you deal with that? Well, again, the journaling is helpful. Also, anything, anything that you can do to help your, and this is actually going to lead into the healthcare provider um, relationship bit. Right. Anything that you can do to help yourself listen to your body. And I feel like this is so important in autoimmune illness. And I guess there's some debate even about whether sarcoid is autoimmune. I'm not sure, but I'm going to call it that. Um, Yeah, we go with that for the most part. Okay. Um, Basically, big picture, inflammation is happening in all these kind of ways that we don't understand. And to take the time and the self-compassion to really listen to your body is so important. It, It almost creates this loop of sort of compassion for yourself listening to yourself. And that means listening to your feelings as well. Um, But I really encourage people to like, if you can, first thing in the morning or whenever you start your day to take 10, 15 minutes to do some sort of meditation or stretching or something where it's just you, maybe some soothing music or a recording of someone guiding you through it, where you really get to listen to things like as as minimal as like, hmm, my left side is more stiff than my right today, you know, which old me would have been like, oh, you know, get over yourself, get going. You know, there's work to do and a walk to take and all that. Not anymore. I, you know, I listen to that. Is that significant? You know? Um, And I also would suggest using that time to, um, allow yourself the space to grieve because grieving does not happen in a discrete period of time. You can feel like you're getting to the point where you've accepted, you know, what we call in psychology or new, your um, illness identity that like, uh-huh. wow, I'm still me, but now I'm me with sarcoidosis, you know, right. um, I'm me with cancer and, you know, um, that's all an experience of loss and, you know, wanting, giving yourself the permission to experience that and feel that and to not put a time frame on it. Um, and wow. if you say okay. things to yourself, like I have, like the worst example um, of negative self-talk, you know, oh, come on, you know, it's been since 2019, you know, <laughs> it's like, no, it, it goes on. It it goes it goes on. And it's it's important to let yourself um feel that. And then from that point, in in my experience and experience with other patients, once you allow yourself that time and that space to feel angry, sad, whatever it's gonna be, it's so much easier and so much more organic then you'll just find that like you're spontaneously grateful for things. You notice things. 
I mean, I had times in my, um, when I was sick, sick, sick from chemo, where um, I would just spontaneously become aware, nothing in my body felt good, but I had this one fleece blanket. And if I felt it on my face, I'd be, oh my God, I love this fleece blanket. <laughs> and, and it was just this temporary reprieve, you know? Right. And right. I feel like those moments are so much more likely to come to you when you're kind to yourself and you let yourself be pissed off about what happened to you. Right. You know? Right. It's not right. fair. Yeah, it's not. <clears throat> for for me, uh, I can remember... I mean, you know, you know, I like all this outdoors stuff. Yeah. But you get up in the morning, and if you get up early enough in the morning, the birds are singing. And, you know, I've always kind of, you know, noticed that passively as I was walking to the car, but that became an end unto itself for me yeah. for a while. When mm -hmm. I was really, it's same thing with chemo and all that, and I was just really low and no energy and and didn't have a relationship with the person I saw in the mirror because my face was twice its normal size from the prednisone and all those things. Uh, and just, just something as simple as the birds singing and noticing it and being able to be in that moment that, that helped me. It really did. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. uh, I'm feeling pretty good today. And, and now that sounds a little, I don't know, I, I probably wouldn't notice the birds as much today if I right. walked outside. But yeah. at the time, it was it was a big deal. And and when I do notice them now, I have to tell myself there was a time that was really important. It's probably still important. Why don't you just stop and sip your coffee and and, and listen yeah. to the birds for, for a couple of minutes here? Yeah, yeah. We are talking to Betsy Bennett, a fellow Sark fighter, and she is also a clinical psychologist who's now, she's talked about herself, but Betsy, I, I, I appreciate the advice you're sharing. We've talked about how to handle relationships once you get sick, how you kind of deal with some of the the more interfacing problems uh, that, that you have. But another thing that really happens, and I am very curious to hear what you have to say about this, is your healthcare relationships, because I've had at least one that went really sour during my journey with sarcoidosis. So what what happens with healthcare relationships that you think it's one of the most important things we have to talk about? Yeah, so help keep me in track here because my mind isn't that great. I'm going to talk about two things. Once again, the close and not so close. Okay. So, um, I, you know, when you and I talked before, we did talk about uh, a healthcare relationship where I was so glad that you got out of that. I know you were glad too. Um, but I also want to talk about or before we get to um, to sort of your main doctors and what that relationship is looks like and how that changes when you're basically like a chronically ill person is the other staff who interact with you. You know, man, I've been in the hospital a lot and I have had wonderful people drawing my blood, administering my chemo, changing my bedpan, putting a catheter in, you name it. But I've also had people who are not nice. Yeah. Or, you know, just really you're like, oh my gosh, you're in the you're in the wrong business. And and when they um give and and you might get you know unwanted advice um just like sometimes we get unwanted advice from people that we know personally 
And I do have a video on this that I think it, it says something like what to do when you get unwanted medical advice. Right. Um, but it also applies to like the phlebotomist who says something, you know, um, inappropriate to you or, or, or not nice or just insensitive actually is more mm-hmm. what I've experienced, just insensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, they're kind of, it's sort of like three steps, you know, so the person says something to you like, um, well, you know, you just need to suck it up, you know, and I've heard that you just need to suck it up. Yeah. Really? Really? (laughs) Whatever. Um, And, you know, part of me wants to say, really, are you really telling me that? Uh Uh But the, this sort of efficient way, and I'm all about efficiency because I've had so much fatigue. I never want to spend energy where it's not worth it. Uh So I start with, yeah, I, I reflect it back to them. Yeah. Sounds like you think I should get a little bit tougher. Um, and then sometimes that even they'll be like, oh, no, I didn't mean it that way. But they'll go, yeah, yeah, you know, you got to be tough if you're sick, you know. And then the second thing is, well, you know what, I'm, I'm, you let them know that somehow you're, that you've, you've taken that on board. Well, thank you. You know, thank you for that. And then you immediately start talking about that. You know, I love that necklace that you're wearing. Or um, how long have you been drawing blood here at X hospital? And just get it right off of me in, into um, small talk. And that's if you want to make it pleasant. If you don't care, feel yeah. free to not care. <laughs> um, just, just tell them you, you're a jerk. <laughs> you know, well, I wouldn't do that just because okay. you're at their mercy. But you could just, um, you could give them a, a terse, you know, you could do non-verbally like, mm-hmm. Boom, you know, mm-hmm, got it. And yeah. then they've heard it or whatever. Right. Me, because I'm, for me, and, and I know you know this by now, <laughs> chatter calms me. I like small talk in those interactions. So I know that what I need is pleasant chatter. And so I move it in that direction. Mm-hmm. You need to figure out what you need in those interactions. And then you make that happen. That makes sense. Okay. So I get, so you're the opposite of me. I hate small talk. I, I can't go. I I don't like going to parties because, you know, it's all small talk talk and, you know, I can put on my, my professional face and I, I can do it, uh, but I, you know, uh, yeah, I I don't like it. Yeah. Maybe, Maybe I'm seeking some level of life efficiency where that's just, I see that as a waste of time. Yeah. And it's so good that you know that because in that situation, you, um, you could just, you know, nod your head, you don't answer and guess what you get? Silence. Right. And if that, and, and you know, that's more soothing to you. Absolutely. You make that happen. The big picture that I want people to come away with is in these healthcare encounters with these sort of, um, on um, ancillary staff where they're doing yeah. things for you, but they're not yeah. making decisions. Um, you just want to go in, you need to know what you need out of it. I need a safe blood test. I need, um, for me, I need some sort of pleasant chatter to get through it. And then I need to get out. Right. Sure. And then you, that's your goal. Always go in with a goal. Sure. I get that. So that's when you're dealing with the ancillary staff and, and, but what, what, what do you do when it's the doctor? What do you, what do you do if either you don't trust the doctor's care 
or you do trust the doctor's care, but you can't stand to be in the same room with the person. Mm-hmm. How do you handle those situations? So I, first of all, right, getting right back to what we were saying before, whatever you feel, you get to feel it. Don't try to turn off your feelings or your talk inside your head about how you felt about the interaction. Trust your gut. Secondly, it can really help to think about your relationship with the doctor as a business partnership. It's not, it's more than that, but Uh it's a business partnership where Uh that you and that person are in a partnership. You don't need to be friends. It's probably better if you're not friends, Right. but that person has a job and you have a job. So their job is to look at all the information that is pertinent and to be continually, every time they see you or get information about you, synthesizing that into the bigger picture and deciding what they think the best course of action is and to communicate that to you and if possible, other options and why they think those are maybe not what they recommend. Well, let's say that you have a strained relationship with the doctor. And so you hesitate to seek follow-up advice or you're not sure if something is working or they prescribed a medicine and it's you, you still think that that it's not the solution um but you don't you don't seek additional care because you don't want to have to deal with that person that's then you've got the wrong doctor yeah i mean right? you yeah i mean you really you know, some of it to even back up a little bit, you have to assess up front, what choices do I have? Uh-huh. So, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have the financial means or the good insurance or both to be able to just travel someplace, uh-huh. then by all means, go. Sure. But if you're not in that situation and you're just having to look at this person, like, is this person competent? Can I tell that they're listening to what I'm saying? Um, oh, wait a minute. That's not the same thing. I know. It's not. It's not. That's what, It's absolutely not. And to me, I, I cannot judge competency until I know that they've heard. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if, and if I'm not certain of that, then I don't know. I mean, I, you know. I hold my thoracic surgeon as like a beautiful example who's of the kind of doctor that I need. And that, and, and I personally, that might not be what someone else needs. I need someone who thinks out loud. So when I went to him for my initial consult, you know, the biopsy had come back positive and he needed to decide whether he was going to use a robot to um, remove part of my lung or um, some sort of scope. And the challenge was to not interfere with my, um, well, for want of a better word, my fake boobs. You know, that's a big operation. Because you've had reconstructive surgery. Yeah, I did. I had reconstructive surgery. And and so I'm like, oh, I couldn't. I just, the thought of going through that again. So he lies me down on a table, lays me down. I don't know. Grammar's not my strength. And um, and he it literally is kind of like poking me in the sides. Okay, so, and he's thinking out loud. He's not asking my opinion. He's going, okay, so if we come in here, then it's sometimes with centimeters to here. Yeah, okay, well, what if we did this? And I was so reassured that he was thinking about it thoroughly. 
Okay. I would not have been comfortable with someone who said, we're using the scope. I would have said, why? Yeah. Tell me why. Right. Um, not, right. And so for me, what's important is that I feel reassured that the person has thought it through. I can't tell whether the content of their thought is um, is kind of accurate or not because I'm not a thoracic surgeon. But I, I have logic. I have the ability to reason. And I can tell when someone's thinking out loud if they are following a logical path. And if they divert from that or diverge from that, then I need to be able to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm following you here, but help me understand why this thing isn't a factor. And then again, I'm looking for them to be able to um, answer that. But again, you are a PhD. You're married to a neurologist. You speak the language. You're highly educated. You, you live there in Raleigh. You, you teach at, at, at UNC. Um, so, you know, you are, you are a person that can understand that, can challenge it, uh, can, can banter with the medical terms. There are a lot of people, most people who, who cannot do that. So somebody else might hear the doctor saying, Hmm, if I do this and it's two centimeters to that, that might sound like, I don't know if this guy really knows what he's talking about. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, and, it's and, still... and then if they, and then if they say, well, da, 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 and then the doctor answers with a technical answer using a bunch of lingo that are, it's medical lingo. Right. That's probably over the head of a lot of patients. Right. So it's going to be different for everybody. It's absolutely going to be different for everybody. And it's so interesting you'd say this because my husband talks about that kind of having to read the tea leaves. What does this patient need? Right. Are they going to need for me to really give them a technical blow by blow explanation? Or, you know, are they going to really just want something more like, hey, I've looked at all of this information. I just examined you and I think the scope is the best. And that would be very reassuring to some people. And that's where I get back to the um, know what your goal is. Because for me, the goal is I need to check. I know I have no business doing this, but I need to check his thinking. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> where, right. Um, whereas someone else, it could make them very anxious and um, and feel like, why is this guy not sure what he's doing? Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, you know, I had a doctor who I thought was a, was a very good doctor, but I didn't like his, his bedside manner. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it became, it got to the point where I just felt like I, I don't, I don't want to go see this guy anymore. That's right. That's right. And, and I, I, fortunately I had options. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, and this gets back to the, you know, just one other thing I wanted to add, getting back to the, like, listening to your body very carefully, mm-hmm. you know, you want to be able to, um, one thing that I've done in the past, and, and this has to do with, I think, knowing my husband and knowing sometimes the pressure, even though it's illogical with something that's essentially incurable, right? but this pressure that he feels to solve whatever problem is brought into him. <laughs> um, he's a problem solver. So uh-huh. um, men tend I, to be that way, yeah. <laughs> especially, and, a, especially a, a neurologist. I'm sure. It's... Yeah. So you know, I will um, now, uh, and I'm not saying everyone should do this. This is just something that I do. Um, when I have these kind of vague symptoms, 
you know, uh-huh. and, and I feel like sarcoid gives you these vague, you don't know if don't it's know. related. You have no idea. Yeah. I'll often preface it um, to my pulmonologist with, I am not expecting you to solve this. And I don't even know if it's pertinent to my sarcoid, but I would like this to be on my record. I've been experiencing this, this, and this. Um, what do you think? And um, I, in my experience, I see a relaxation like, okay, this she doesn't expect me to solve this. Okay, now I can think about it. Right, right. I, I will often give my doctor clues. Well, this feels this way and this feels this way. And, you know, if you could take that into consideration as you're trying to figure out what's going on, very seldom do doctors ever listen to my clues. <laughs> and, and, and usually it's something that, that seems like it's important to a patient, but a doctor knows enough to know that it's like, no, you know, that's, that's not it. Uh, or, or they are so locked on to their own path that they don't want uh, other factors to go into their algorithm. So right. So very seldom do doctors listen to my clues, but at least I feel like I need to say it and be heard. Yeah, and and the the thing is is that I go by the um the philosophy of the you never know philosophy. Right. Because, you know, having had so many unpleasant surprises over the past few years, yeah. I I am very much of a mind of like, I I want this in my record. And if we continue to see a pattern, then I probably am going to advocate for myself to follow it through. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, um, I just, we all know too many stories of a person who had a feeling about such and such, or they were experienced and it was dismissed, dismissed. And then it turned out to be important. Right. So I, right. I, even the very best of doctors can, there can be things going on with you that are of such low probability that your doctor can be forgiven for mm-hmm. not wanting to sure. like mess up the, the track that they're on. Mm-hmm. But if it continues to happen, I think at some point you have to say, uh, you know, is there any way we can check X out because I'm continuing to notice it. And I've even said before, I just have a bad feeling about it. Yep. Yep. Well, I, I, I did that and went through a couple of bouts of that. And finally they did an additional MRI and lo and behold, I was having a flare. The medication early on was not controlling my SARC. And because it's on my spinal cord, uh, even a small flare can have huge irreparable right. results. So you're right. married to a neurologist. So you, you know, that's oh, urologist, by the way, sorry, oh, urologist. Yes, Urolo- yes. Okay. Yes. Urologist. Okay. Um, well, whatever you're married to a doctor. So uh, I'm sure that every, everybody in the medical community knows that spinal cord damage is not something that can be repaired. So anytime right. I get additional damage, it's additional permanent damage. That's, that's my sad story. Um but finally, they did do an MRI, and they discovered that, lo and behold, I was having a flare, and they, uh, at that time, I think they upped the amount of Remicade that I was taking, um, which lasted for just so long before I started having liver trouble, uh, which they, you know, to their credit, they they tracked and they discovered and found an alternate path for me. But I don't want to get, I, I, it's not about me. The thing I want to get to before you and I are done today is we've we've talked about your your three major bullet points, but you have 
you use an interesting term called the tyranny of positivity, and you touched yeah. on it briefly, but not with the word tyranny in there. So what do you mean by the tyranny of positivity? Yeah, that, and I have that, to that say people upfront, force upon you. Yeah, that that I wish that that were my phrase and it's not and I've used it for so long that I can't remember where I got it from. Okay. So I want to be totally upfront that I'm not that creative. Okay. Um but um but I know what I like and I know what resonates. Yeah, it's you know, I, I was reading a, so between the time that you and I talked last week and today I did some reading about that because I like I think I told you my email. I want to make a little video about it. Uh-huh. And um, here's the here's here's the thing. When people tell you to stay positive or you seem positive or um, these kind of admonitions to like you always got to you know be up and and um, and all of all that positivity means. It's important to realize that a it's not your job to stay positive it's your job to love yourself and be compassionate towards yourself and compassionate towards the people who love you that's your job that's literally your only job that's it it's not your job to be positive so that's first thing to remember it's not your Second job thing, to be po- you don't have to be positive nope is you positivity is there a tie between positivity and happiness uh, you know i I don't know. I don't even know. I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm like, what I would want for myself and everyone is peace, an inner peace. Inner peace. That's, yes. And okay. um, that does not necessarily mean being positive. It might. It might uh-huh. for you, uh-huh. but it might not when you feel like crap and you've just gotten bad news of an MRI and what you've been saying all along and they hadn't been listening to, you yeah. know, like, right. like, yeah, you know what? You get to be angry and you get to not be positive. Right. Um, you know, so that's number one. Number two, the person who says that is a product of our culture. And that's not to let the person off the hook who is saying something that could be ill-timed or insensitive. But a lot of times people really think they're being helpful. And the reason they think they're being helpful is that we have a narrative in our culture that we are to battle our illnesses and we are to end up victorious. And to be a good warrior, you got to stay positive. And that's all like our culture loves that. We love that story. What we don't really love because it doesn't have much of a story arc or anything else is I'm getting through today the best I can. That's my yeah, story. That's my story. So is that an American thing? You can't, you said, you said our culture is, is that worldwide? If you go to India uh, or Europe, are you going to hear the same thing or is that an American thing? I don't know. I often hear it described in this, again, phrase that's not mine, uniquely American. But Uh, whether that's actually unique, I don't know. I don't know. But it is pervasive, absolutely pervasive. And it's there. And that's one of the reasons that it's hard for people to come up with something else to say, because our culture doesn't equip us to come up with other things to say. Right. It equips us with this, like, you can do it. You know, um, I remember one time I was in the, the middle of my chemo was was the worst. 
And um, someone came to visit me and she told me I looked vibrant. Vibrant? Vibrant? I'm freaking half dead right now. And you know, you, you know, you look half dead. You know, you don't look vibrant. Yeah. She's, but that, she's, she's trying to say something nice. Yes. Mm. And it's positivity culture. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and like, and honestly, and I, and, and I love this person, not her fault. She just really didn't know what else to say. So right. um, I would encourage people listening to don't feel like you have to jump from hurt sarcasm whatever eye roll whatever that immediate reaction is to the stay positive right. don't feel like you have to jump to this place of forgiveness oh she's doing the best she can it's it's okay to be angry let yourself have that and then eventually i think the more that any of us can educate ourselves about like this is you know culture they talk about it, it's the air we breathe right it's right. everywhere and it's right. asking a lot for people to step out of that and think about, well, what might I want to hear? And that's hard if you've never been sick. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, I know and there's there's a couple of schools of thought here, and this has come up tangentially before with some other people on the podcast. Um, for instance, I end every podcast by saying, until next time, keep fighting. And it's called mm -hmm. the Sark Fighter Podcast, which suggests – you are in a fight, you're in a battle, but you can win, which yeah. in and of itself <clears throat> is not telling somebody you look vibrant, but it is suggesting that you should fight the good fight and that you can win. Um, right. And I honestly believe that. Now, I know that in, in some quarters of medicine where you're looking at and you've experienced both so and you're a psychologist so your answer to this question is going to be very interesting to me because you've had breast cancer and lung cancer which can be fatal mm -hmm. um, sarcoidosis can be fatal also but it's not often as fatal so most people live with some version of the crap that comes with sarcoidosis yeah but when you're in an end of life situation sometimes the worst thing you can do to somebody is say keep fighting because yeah. they know they've got six months or a year or less right. to live what you want them to have is peace in the moment yeah yeah right yeah. so there's there's two different schools of thought there is it appropriate for those of us with sarcoidosis to look at a possibility of uh, you know a better day-to-day -day life and and that's okay or or should we back should am i wrong to tell people to keep fighting and that whatever your answer is is fine i'm not going to stop but whatever your answer is is, yeah, yeah. is really thoughtful and I, and I would appreciate that counsel well so i did a video on this very thing and it's really? called what if you're tired of fighting okay and um and my answer will not surprise you. It depends on what makes you feel good. So, you know, for for you and maybe many, many others, it feels good to be like, I'm not down. Or if I'm down, I'm getting back up. You know, that that's energizing for mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And I would say that, well, then, for heaven's sakes, keep thinking that way and keep saying it because that's working for you. Mm -hmm. I think if you are more like me and maybe like you said, maybe it's a product of the other diseases I've had, 
that to me feels um, like an extra job that I can't take on. Like, hmm. please don't ask me to fight. I'm so freaking tired. Um, um, all what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit back. I'm going to relax. I'm going to do exactly what my doctors tell me to do. I'm going to keep meticulous records of all of my symptoms. And I'm going to love these wonderful people around me who love me back. And that's my job. I'm done. And occasionally make videos if they're helpful to people. But that's fighting. Well, isn't that interesting? You're, yeah, it's, your like, coping, it's your coping mechanism. Yes. So, so it's not like you're you're doing push-ups. You're no. journaling. You're you're going to consciously be nice to people. You're going to do the things that help you get through whatever your situation is. And that you know it, that doesn't have to mean getting on your bike like I do and and riding right. until you reach exhaustion, which is right, which, right. You know, maybe maybe that's not maybe that's a really bad idea. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, um, but uh. But you're still finding, you know, a coping mechanism is fighting, is it not? Well, it's so interesting because, and this gets all the way back to when we started talking about journaling, the power of language. Uh -huh. It depends on what that word evokes for you. Right. So for me, and, and what's interesting, you know, yours and my background is so different. You know, you've been an athlete. I was never an athlete, ever. Uh -huh. And so the idea of like, you know, fighting and competing and that sort of thing that feels like, Oh, that's too, I'm overwhelmed already. Where to you, that's like a familiar, it's good, yeah. you know? Uh -huh. And so you would look at what I'm doing is like, Oh yeah, that is fighting where to me, like, Oh no, that word, that word's too much. It, it just kind of depends on what it evokes in you. I think. Right. Right. That's well, that's interesting. Um, but it's, it's good perspective. And I, and I do hear what you say about this, tyranny of positivity. If I walk into the newsroom today and I've just clearly got a down look on my face, people are not going to be pleased with that. They want me to come in right. be happy, you know, welcome to work, da, 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 da. Um, you know, yeah. it's a newsroom, you know, we, we talk to each other a lot, you know, we're working in sometimes, you know, on terrible stories, people dying, that sort of thing um, yeah. every day. Uh, never ends, you know, fighting with, with Russia, fighting with China, you know, all, all these things that are, are important. And yet, you know, you're expected to, you know, yeah. have a quip and be and be up and be positive because, you know, especially in a leadership role, which I have to a certain extent, if I'm down and the people around me come down yeah, and nobody likes that for the, no. for the, you know, so there is this culture of positivity where you're just expected to be that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and that's yeah. That, I don't, I don't, in your situation. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I'm just thinking your situation is particularly tough because you're in a leadership position. Yeah. And so, you know, how do you how do you kind of carve out like, all right, well, this is what um, perhaps I need to this performance, basically, mm -hmm. that I need to give because I am a leader. Right. And then privately, do I and in my personal relationships, can I really be more transparent about how I'm feeling? 
Right. You know, right. That that's that's a tough dance. Yeah, it is tough. It is tough. And and people people in our American culture expect you to come in and be happy. Or if you're not happy, not to show it, don't bring your problems to work, that kind of thing. Right. And that that right. is a tyranny of positivity. Yes. Before before we wrap up, you've mentioned your YouTube channel a couple of times. What is it? How do people find it? Um, so hope you have show notes, right? Or something like that. I do. I sure do. Yeah. I'll put a link okay. and all that so people can find it, but, but you're basically giving out, um, free clinical advice on your YouTube channel. And what, do you have a name for the channel? I can't remember. Yeah, off the top of my head. I'm sorry. It's like at Dr. Betsy B or something, okay. um, is okay. the, is the YouTube handle. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, for legal reasons, I can't call it clinical advice, but, sure. but, um, sure. but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm basically trying to share, I, I did find this, like here, I'd spent years working with people who are sick. And, um, then when it happened to me, um, the stuff that I knew was just so helpful. Like I was just like, Oh my gosh, how would I be navigating this if I hadn't learned from all of these patients who so selflessly shared their stories with me, from the time I was literally 24 years old. Right. That's how long I've been working with sick people. Okay. And and finally I'm I'm 55 and you know it was super helpful so I wanted to just put it out there so that other people who were sick had something to watch and maybe maybe just give them an idea like yeah I'm going to try that, you yeah. know? Yeah. Okay. Well, I've watched your videos. They're very, very well done. And the advice is great. And if people have been listening here for the last hour, they know where you're coming from. So we'll put a link in the show notes and people can check out your, your YouTube channel. But Betsy, listen, thank you so much for sharing your personal sarcoidosis story and your professional advice. This has been wonderful. And we've had some great back and forth banter on some of these deep issues that affect yeah. all of us. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. And um, every I wish everyone peace. That's what I wish. <laughs> I'm not going to say stay strong. I wish you peace. I feel like a zombie Just feeding and stumbling So thanks to Betsy for sharing her story and her expertise because she does guide people through all sorts of different things when you're trying to figure out what's going on with your life. And she started a YouTube channel and there is a link in the show notes and you can click on that and for free you can get advice from Betsy and and let's give her some love and Click on that channel and subscribe and hit the bell so that every time she uploads, you get a notification. And let's show Betsy some love and support as she's trying to give back by sharing her expertise. And by the way, I got to remind you that uh, fellow Stark fighter Royce Robertson, who's been on the podcast twice now, is doing a fundraising bike ride. And I mean, he's not riding around the block, people. He's he's doing a three-day ride uh, as he goes from Buffalo to Syracuse, New York. So he's going from west to east, and he's calling it Cycle for Sark. If you've been listening, you know that I'm a cyclist, and I had really hoped to join him, and we were going to just take the bull by the horns and go raise all this money. Well, now he's doing it by himself because he has schedule conflicts, I have schedule conflicts, 
and the date that he basically had to do it just would not work out for me. So I am hoping to join him next year, and we are hoping that this grows into a movement in support of FSR. We have a whole group of cyclists wearing purple jerseys riding along the trail there in New York and and raising money and awareness for FSR. But uh, so far, uh, I'm not, well, I'm not involved other than that I've made a donation to his account, which is part of KISS, Kick In to Stop Sarcoidosis. And all you do is you go to the FSR website to donate. You click on Join Team KISS, which is one of the drop-downs on the menu, and then you just scroll down a little bit and you'll see Royce's Cycle for Sark page. So, Uh, I can't go with Royce. He does have some other folks that he knows going with him. They're all doing fundraising. And if this is something that appeals to you in any way, he is looking for people to go along with him. And definitely next summer, the summer of 2024, uh, I am planning to go with him, and I'm hoping we can get a whole bunch of us. And if you can't do the whole three days or whatever, uh, I mean, I know that's a lot. I'm scared of it. Uh, I'll be honest with you. But... um, I'm also willing to to do the training and put in the time because obviously sarcoidosis as a cause is that important to me. So uh, if that's something you want to do, reach out to Royce. There's a link in the show notes and uh, and you can definitely see if you can uh, help him be successful. And listen, if you can't go, make a donation like I did and uh, and, and just let's let's make Royce's time and energy and effort and dream worth it, okay? And so, listen, I hope to see as many of you as possible at the Crystal Gala on May 24th in Washington, D.C. Got to tell you, the official Sark Fighter song is Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards, out of Alberta, Canada. Mark is a fellow Sark Fighter. The story behind the lyrics is in episode 12. I release the Sark Fighter podcast every other Monday, and I'm looking over as I'm speaking today. My trusty dog, Dougal, is curled up on the chair in my office, and as you know, Dougal makes my life so much better. The backstory to the founding for the of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson, who started this whole thing at their kitchen table more than 20 years ago. Don't forget to follow the Sark Fighter on Facebook and Instagram. I'm on Peloton as Sark Fighter. If any of you have a Peloton bike or treadmill, or if you're just signing in and doing the exercises. Uh, And my cycling blog is Carlin the Cyclist, and I do have a section called Cycling with Sarcoidosis, and I've written several pieces about the difficulty of continuing my love with the bicycle and doing that with sarcoidosis, but also how it has helped me tremendously. If you're new here and you just want to know what sarcoidosis is, go back and listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. I talked to uh, Dr. Hart, who joined me from the UK, about all the basic stuff that I didn't know and that I feel like most people don't know when they're first told that they have sarcoidosis. What is it? How's it get in the body? What's his best guess at uh, the cause of sarcoidosis? Of course, nobody knows how long will it be before we start finding cures. Uh, those types of things, and what's actually going on in your body at the cellular level that's making these cells attack normally healthy parts of our body, our lungs, our heart, our nervous system, you name it. 
right? So that's all back there in episode two. My story is episode one. And if you want to contact me, and a lot of people do, I'm always so pleased, uh, send me an email, carlinagency at gmail.com. There's a link in the show notes. And let me know if you'd like to be on the podcast. I am now booking through the middle part of 2023, and I'm looking for some folks to who want to share their story. So uh, let me know if you're interested. I do appreciate all of your interest in the Sark Fighter podcast. I look at the numbers of downloads. They're still going up. Uh, we are well over 50,000 downloads now. I'm closer to 60,000 side, and it just blows me away. It just really does. So, uh, and, and let's, let's continue to make this podcast more effective, and it does help me reach more people and grow the show. If you get that link and share it on your social media if you like it, just tell one person. And then, of course, when you go to your phone or wherever you get your podcast, don't forget to click that follow button so that new podcasts are downloaded automatically. And please, please, please give the show a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer. Hey.